You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. I just wanted to chase happiness. I just wanted to chase happiness. And I was so depressed. You know, and I was in therapy, like, why am I depressed? Like, I have this career that so many people envy. I'm working with big stars and being paid a lot of money, and I'm in a happy marriage, or so I thought. And like... Why am I just massively depressed all the time? And it took me a couple of years of therapy to get there, but I realized I wasn't in a happy marriage. I was just sort of fooling myself. We were both sort of fooling ourselves. And I actually hated my career. The thing my passion was, was fantasy football of all things, which in 2005, who thought you could make a career of? And how did you know, like you said before, you were interested in Bruce Springsteen, you were interested in, you know, pizza, you were interested in other things. How did you know fantasy sports would be the thing? It's just, that was my passion. And I also thought that there was an opportunity there. What would you say to say, let's say someone's listening to this and they're a paralegal at, at Procter and Gamble and they're thinking, you know what? I was just furloughed or I might be furloughed or I might be fired and things are accelerated now. I've got to kind of figure out what to do next. Not that there's a solid process, but what are maybe some ways to think about it in order to determine what they love and what the next steps might be? 
Yeah. yeah. How long, how long, James, how long, how long do you think? An hour. Okay. Last time I had you on uh, three hours. Almost something as a, crazy, yeah. We almost went crazy as a long. joke, just to see how long it could go. You were very polite. You you did not you did not get off the. That was in 2014. You realize that was six years ago. Oh my god, how long and have then, we known each other? We've known each other a long time. Yeah, six years. Because then we yeah. had lunch, I think, around yep. 2016, and we talked mm -hmm. about business ideas. Yeah. And I really appreciate you you coming on. I was I've been thinking about you a lot during this period, actually, because at, in six years I've interviewed, you know about 600 people now and uh you know from all walks of life every type of peak performer out there and your story has really stuck with me and i really think it's inspiring to people right now so if if you don't mind i hope we kind of cover a little ground that we covered six years ago and maybe go into some new stuff yeah whatever whatever you want man that'd uh, be great so Matt Berry is the. You've been very kind. You've always been very kind about uh, me and my story, and always su so supportive and a good friend. So however I can help. Oh great, I appreciate it. Thank you, Matt. And 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 just so the audience knows, I have Matt Berry, uh, maybe the first ESPN anchor ever to cover fantasy sports. That's I'm assuming that's correct. Uh, not the first anchor. I even wouldn't call myself an anchor, but. Um... I'm the most prominent. How about that? I'm I'm the most prominent and, and the I think I think I get the most credit for for people that are wishing to give me some credit uh is is helping uh popularize and mainstream fantasy football. I certainly didn't invite the game, but um I'm sort of the the Pied Piper, if you will, the the lead cheerleader. I, I'm I'm often credited with, you know, being one of the one of the leaders of uh of, of bringing it mainstream and 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 making it uh, as popular as it is today. So uh, I don't know how much credit I can take for that, but that's often what I'm given a lot of credit for. I'll, I'll give you a lot of credit for it. And, and you also host the fantasy show on ESPN, which is popular, it benefits a lot from your prior experience, which we're gonna get into. Uh, you, your original job in Hollywood was mm -hmm. uh, writing for or working for the, the George Carlin show. So I'm sure you yep. got a lot of uh, experience there and, and had the qualifications to write for such a genius like George Carlin. And along the way, you're writing Hollywood movies, TV shows, and then suddenly, boom, there was a, a, a split in your brain. Like you couldn't take Hollywood anymore, which many would consider the dream job. And you kind of went down to bare bones, started from scratch, uh, started writing fantasy sports blog posts for $100 a post, which was pathetic, but I, I get it. I used to write post for nothing. If you love what you're doing, you'll do it for, yeah. for free. And then gradually you, you once again became a success in another field. And I think it's very interesting for people to see that you can switch careers. Uh, and this was, you kind of switched during a recessionary time or just coming out of a recession, you can switch careers doing, during a bad period in the economy, lose everything. Not that you necessarily did. And and rise to the top of a whole new field. And I, I just want to ask you all about that. I appreciate that and happy to get into it. Happy to answer whatever questions you may have. So but, uh, I'll correct. Go ahead. What do you got? Oh yeah, no, correct me, correct me. And then I'll, I'll, I'll tell you one anecdote. Okay. So, um, so I graduated from Syracuse university in 1992. I moved out to Hollywood to, to pursue a dream of being a Hollywood sitcom and movie and TV writer. Um, I got a job working as a production assistant, as a PA, which is basically, it's a gopher. It's like the lowest guy on the rung. 
for the George Carlin show. So I was I was the 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 production assistant, the PA, stage 17 on the Warner Brothers lot in Burbank, California for the George Carlin show, which meant if I was on the stage, I was with the actors and in essence I sort of got adopted by George to sort of be his guy. He's the star of the show, so he was always my number one priority and so I was basically George Carlin's assistant for a year. Um, so uh, I would love well, to well, say that I, I wrote jokes for him, but I did not. Um, no well, one what ever was that it. like, though? Like, like, what did you learn from him in terms of, you know, he's so he's so smart. And I feel like comedians are kind of the philosophers of today's day right. and age. And by the way, I always appreciate on the fantasy show, you're, you're, you, you bring your humor in there. You're, you're very self-deprecating. But what, what do you think you learned from Carlin? There's a couple of things I learned from. I learned, I mean, I learned a ton. Um, uh, I'll tell you two quick stories. Um, in terms of mostly what I learned, I shouldn't say mostly, but one of the big things I learned from George was honestly was uh, how to how to behave and and treat people, which sounds insane, but uh, I'll give you uh, first off, George on stage. George was completely the opposite on uh, on stage as he was in real life. In real life, he was sweet, he was mild, uh, mild-mannered, um, couldn't be kinder or of a more gentle person. You know, you always sort of think about, you know, the, the angry guy on stage and, you know, um, uh, and, you know, the brilliance of his comedy. But offstage, he was the complete opposite. He was always the first, and you have to understand, at that time in Hollywood, that was the era, and so that was, that was 1994. Three, I want to say 1993, 1994, somewhere in that range. And in that, that era of Hollywood, that was Roseanne. That was grace under fire with, with, uh, with, um, Oh, what's, what's the comedian thing? Brett Butler. And, um, you know, there were a lot of stories around sitcoms there. Uh, simple shepherd. There were a lot of rumors about her and that show. And, and just basically, there were stars of shows that were very angry and, and mean to their staff and cruel, and people got fired all the time, and it was kind of this revolving door. And so George was – it was very important to George that he not be thought of like any of those people. And those are all rumors. I can't substantiate any of them, um, but they're all sort of well-documented. Other people have written about them. And um, so he was always the first guy on set, last guy to leave, knew everyone's name, et cetera, et cetera. So – I was his assistant and I'd been there probably about two months and my best friend from high school was coming out to visit. It was going to be like sort of the first person I had uh, coming to uh, visit me in Hollywood. And so I just mentioned to George, you know, we were taping a show that night and I said, hey, George, there was usually a bunch of errands he had me do after the show. I went to him and I said, listen, hey, George, I have a friend from high school tonight coming coming to the show and I was going to show him around after the show. Would you mind? Would it be okay with you if whatever you need me to do after the show, I took care of before the show, I could just take care of it now so that I can you know, be free after the show to, to show my friend around. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just need you to do this, 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 and this. I said, great, thanks. So I take care of it. After the show, I'm walking my friends around and showing them, you know, here's, here's where the grip sits and here's, you know, here's what cameras look like and et cetera. And all the stuff that you see on a, on a TV set. Um, which they never been to before. And all of a sudden, George walks up. He says, Matthew, are these your friends? Uh, I, yes. Uh, Sean and Cindy, George Carlin. George Carlin, Sean and Cindy. And George goes into the big cell. Goes into the big cell. He's like, I have to tell you, Matthew's going to be a big star. 
He's a great kid. He works his tail off. I consult with him every day. We couldn't do the show without him. He's oh such God. an important cog of what we do around here. Understand, like, I get coffee. You know what I mean? I get lunch. I Xerox scripts. This is back in the day when you had to Xerox things. Like, I Xerox scripts. Like, I, I run errands. I pick up his laundry for him. Like, like I'm the lowest run to the run. But George has given my friends the big sell. You know, and their eyes are going wide. And he's got a couple of signed scripts of the show that night. He's like, hey, here, here, take this. And come on, let's do a photo. Let's do a photo. You know, and so, and how are you guys? So where are you from? And, you know, spends a couple of minutes with them, right? So it's amazing. So anyway, they walk off and they're they're all impressed with me now. And, you know, they're floating on air. And the next day I talk, I'm like, George, oh my God, that was, that was amazing. Thank you so much. And he's like, listen, he's like, first off, he's like, you're a good kid. You work hard. I'm happy to do it. He goes, but more importantly, if you ever need someone to do that, if you ever need me to say hi to somebody, please bring them to me. If anyone ever comes visits the set, bring them to me. And I'd always known that like any, we always got all these requests for charity items and things for to be signed and pictures. And he always did them, but he, he, he never explained his philosophy till that day. He said, listen, he said for the rest, he said, you know, I'm happy to do it. Cause again, you're, you're a nice kid. You work hard. I, I'm happy to have you here. He says, but here's the thing, your friends now for the rest of their lives, the next time my name comes up in conversation, uh, the next time my name comes up in conversation, they say, oh, I met Carlin once. He was a good guy. I really liked him. He said, as opposed to, I met Carlin once, wouldn't even sign my comedy album, whatever. Again, back in the days when they had albums. And he goes, uh, he goes so you're telling me I just traded two minutes of my life for a lifetime fan? I'll make that trade every day. You know what's so interesting about that, and it's such a great story, is that there's the thing you do that makes you known. So for Carlin, it was, you know, stand up ever since the the sixties and, and how he was, you know, became one of the first comedians to really be brutally honest, as opposed to just doing the classic Bob Hope premise, you know, punchline and so on. So that kind of made him who he was, but he has this awareness that people aren't going to remember or retell jokes from the sixties. People are going to remember what he does and how he makes them feel which is the kind of classic line, but it's, it's really true. That's where he sets his legacy. It is. And, and so, I mean, obviously I'm not, you know, I'm, you know, one, one millionth as famous as George Carlin or whatever, but I have a, you know, I have a little bit of notoriety for people that play fantasy football or watch ESPN. And, you know, I get recognized a decent amount when I go out in public. Yeah. When we, when we, when we went out for lunch a few years ago, Everybody was stopping you on the street. Oh, thank you for your fantasy picks the day before. Like you, you were known by everyone in the restaurant. People were coming up to you and shaking your hand. I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty well known to a very specific group of people, um, uh, which is, you know, people that play fantasy football or, or at least watch ESPN and, and notice me. And, um, and so, you know, and I have a, I have a semi-distinctive look thanks to my, you know, receding hairline. Um, and, and so, you know, anyway, uh, but the point is, is that I try to, and there are times where I haven't been, um, you know, as gracious as I would have liked, you know, because I'm, I'm eating with my kids and my, you know, one of my, one of my kids is fighting with the other or whatever. It's just a bad moment. Um, you know, standing in an airport, uh, you know, waiting for a flight, you know, a, a delayed flight, kids are going crazy, but generally, um, but I'm always, I always take the picture. I always talk about their team for a second and, I try to always, this, this is what the part I was going to say. I don't want anyone to think that like I'm ever a jerk. I'm not, but, um, uh, I always try to go above and beyond. Thanks to George. If they come up to me and they, they, you know, they want it, let's take a, 
Let's take a picture. Let's do a selfie. Let me tell me about your team. Let's go through the trade that you want to talk about. You need me to do a trash talk video for your league. I'm happy to do it. Let's, you know, so I always try to kind of go above and beyond when, when anyone, you know, uh, approaches me in a, in a nice and respectful way, you know, because that's, that's what I learned from George. The other thing that I learned from George, uh, in terms of writing comedy was the fact that context is so important, right? And so he does a routine about this, but he sort of brought, talked me through the routine. And I would sometimes, you know, sitcoms especially are sort of set up joke, set up joke, right? And so George would, um, again, I, I never wrote anything. George always wrote for himself, which is what I think he struggled with a sitcom format. It only ran for two years because he wasn't used to having people write for him. He always wrote his own stuff. And and so I worked crazy hours on that sitcom because what would happen is, is the writers would write their scripts and I would take them to George. I would drive them to George. This is, again, this is 2004 or five. So email wasn't really prominent right then. And George wasn't the most, you know, uh, technically savvy guy. So I would basically take the printed script, drive it to his house and wait while he would mark it up with notes. And then I would drive it back to the writers. Right. And he would always rewrite stuff in his own voice. And so and one of the things I learned was how important context is in comedy. Right. So many people think that um, that comedy writing is, uh, you know, set up joke, set up joke. And the best example I can give it is not a George Carlin example, although I will give one George Carlin example. But I wrote on Married with Children and, you know, you think about. Uh, high peg, right? Just that phrase, high peg, H-I comma P-E-G period, high peg. You see high peg on a screen and that doesn't make you laugh. I say high peg, that doesn't make you laugh. That's not funny at all. But Al Bundy walking through the door, putting, taking his coat off, turning around, seeing his wife sitting on the couch, eating bonbons, watching TV, he sighs you know, with that amazing depressed sigh look that Ed O'Neill had, sighs and goes, I peg. And we'd get a laugh every time because of the context you understand, you know, the, the, the torture of, of Al Bundy in that moment. You know, George used to be obsessed with language and he has, he has very famous routines about this, all based off of the seven dirty words uh, routine. And... Um, you know, he used to talk about the fact that he thought it was insane that the seven words that he came up with for this this comedy routine, seven words you can't say on television, is the definition of profanity in U.S. law books because there was a there was a you know there was a uh, there was a there was a Supreme Court case. Um, I think it was WBAI versus the FCC. Or WBAL. I could I think it's WBAI. So I could be wrong on that, but um, uh, because there was this radio station in in Long Island that played the routine and got sued and there's a whole thing. And so George's take was that words mean whatever you want them to mean, that they're just words, right? It's all about the context behind them. He's just like, no, you think this is dirty. You think that's dirty. I can make anything dirty. What'd you do last night? I was walking the dog. You know, I mean, the way he's just, it's all about inflection. It's all about context. Oh yeah. Oh my, uh, yeah. He just, you know, my, my wife came over last night and, you know, we had to, mow the yard right i mean like and so you know he that was his point like that mow the yard is 
perfectly innocent until you put it into some context and and use um, use inflection. And so that was an important lesson that I learned. And then I saw again on, on Married with Children, which was, which was a very set up jokey show, but so much context, you know, my favorite Married with Children joke of all time. And I didn't write it um, is Christina Applegate, uh, her character, Kelly Bundy. Kelly Bundy walks in the front door. Her hair's askew. Her blouse has a couple of buttons undone. Her miss, her, her, you know, her, her lipstick smeared. Right. It looks like she's clearly done something. So Kelly Bundy walks into the door. You take a look at her like that, and she goes, "Well, I passed math." You know, and like it's just such a you know, it's just a, such a simple, easy joke. But just Christina is brilliant, and you know, again, all context, right? I passed yeah. math isn't funny at all on its own, but delivered by Kelly Bundy looking like she just, you know, she just went two rounds, you know, got a huge laugh, huge laugh. It's so interesting because around the same time George Carlin was kind of transforming his act, Richard Pryor was as well, going from kind of a Bill Cosby style to just talking about growing up in a whorehouse and, and you know, how he grew up and what happened to him. So, and, and it reminds me much later of more recently of, uh, Sebastian Maniscalco, who isn't necessarily set up punchline, but just his whole way of being is funny when he gets into that Italian, Italian American persona. Yep. And so a lot of people, I think, ignore that, uh, you know, even, even stand up comedians. Have you ever thought about doing stand up comedy? I have, I, I own a comedy club, you know, I, I recently <laughs> bought a comedy club. Oh, congratulations. Where is, where is this comedy club located? Uh, 78th and Broadway, Stand oh, Up New York. Stand Up New York. Oh, I didn't know you owned that. Oh, interesting. That's so funny. I have thought about doing stand up. I have actually done stand up in my life before. Um, I, uh, so I randomly, this is a story I've literally never told. Uh, but I, so. A first uh, for the podcast. There you go. When I was in Syracuse, when I was in Syracuse, Doritos of all things, Doritos decided to hold a contest called The Funniest Student in America. And they, they went to like a hundred colleges and they had these local competitions. And so I enter a local st student standup competitions. And so I entered for Syracuse and it, I ended up winning Syracuse. So I was named the, whatever, the funniest student comedian in, at Syracuse, whatever, you know, for that year, I think it was 1990. And I, um, and I ended up making it to like the semifinals of the national competition. Uh, before I lost, but, um, uh, but as a result, then a, a little while later, Dennis Miller, who at the time was the weekend update host on Saturday night live and a very popular standup comedian was coming to Syracuse to do a standup comedy, uh, concert. And so the people that were organizing the, the organization that was organizing that came to me and said, would you like to, he didn't have an opening act. And he had just said, yeah, just grab somebody local. And they're like, well, it's, you know, he's coming in, uh, you know, as a student, he's coming in to perform for the students with student fee money. So we should have a student open for him. And since I had just been named the funniest student at Syracuse by Doritos, um, they want to know if I would like to open for Dennis Miller. So like my third stand up gig ever, I think was opening up for Dennis Miller in front of 1100 people. That's great. Um, by the way, Dennis Miller could not have been kinder to me. And this was really interesting about Dennis. Um, so, uh, so I do my little routine and I come off and then there's, you know, there's an MC that's sort of talking up and talking him up. And so I'm backstage with Dennis there for a couple of minutes. And he says, 
he says, hey, nice job out there. And I said, do you really mean it? He goes, yeah. He goes, listen, you know, he, um, he says, he said, yeah, actually, you actually have some very funny premises and some, some interesting thoughts there. Um, and then after he says, hang around after the show. And so after the show, um, we went out to dinner. It was like me and, and Dennis Miller and like his manager who had come to the show um, or agent or somebody, somebody was with him and like a couple of the students that had organized the event. And so there's like six or seven of us and we grab a, a late dinner and some drinks. And um, I, during that dinner, I asked Dennis, like, if I wanted to try to make a recur of this, what could I do? And what was interesting is, is Dennis says, he goes, let me ask you this. He goes, how important is, is it for you to get the laugh? And I go, what do you mean? And he goes, he goes, as a performer, you're not great. Um, he goes, but your writing is really strong. He says, I thought your jokes were really well written and really smart. And like, he's like, could you ever write for a show like Saturday Night Live where you write the joke, but you hand it off to somebody like me who gets the laugh? Mm -hmm. And I said, I don't know. I don't, he goes, it's an ego question. He goes in it. He goes, there's no wrong answer. He goes, you know, just, you have, but you have to be honest with yourself because there's nothing worse than saying you don't want to be a performer, but you really do. And then handing it off and seeing somebody else get the laugh and you're sitting there all bitter. So, you know, just, you have to be honest with yourself. He goes, but I think, I think your writing is strong. Your performing needs work, which he was a hundred percent right about. And so it was really interesting that he sort of picked up on that. And of course I've made my career as a writer and, and the, experience that I've had, uh, being on television, uh, you know, and, and other mediums is entirely because of my success as a writer. And I've had to work very, very hard as a performer to get there. That's interesting. Writing's always come easy to me, but performing, when I lived out in LA, I took classes at the groundlings for a couple of years. And, you know, I, I, uh, I don't know that I'm great, but I'm now passable. And, you know, it's, I, I worked hard at that. You know, it's, it's interesting because it reminds me of this scene from the movie, uh, from the TV show Crashing on HBO about the comedian Pete Holmes. Mm -hmm. And he's trying out for this big club, the comedy seller and the booker Etsy asks him these questions that he can't answer, which is who are you? Why are you? Why now? And she says, everybody needs to answer that about, she kind of implies everyone needs to answer that about their career. And he couldn't really answer, you know, and, and it sounds like you were able to, with, with this prodding from Dennis Miller, you were able to answer, you know, you were well, a funny no, guy. Not at that time, but that, that's the point. And, and that in fact, actually, James, it's great that you bring that up because you're hundred percent right. Think about what we were talking about when, in terms of context and, and George Carlin, right? George Carlin, again, context, because when George Carlin gets on stage, you know who he is, you know, that's built up. Same with Dennis Miller, right? When Dennis Miller was doing comedy, that was, um, you know, his persona. And in yeah. fact, my success didn't come until, and so now I do, I don't do necessarily stand up, but I'll do events where I'll do like, I'll do preseason fantasy football events. I'll do, you know, when I had my book, I would do book signings and that kind of stuff. And I'll talk to the crowd and I, you know, I, I have some prepared remarks that I'll do and also, you know, go off the cuff and I'll do Q and A and I do live, you know, in my podcast, we do live events with a podcast. So I do things that are close to stand up but I've developed a character, right? So I understand now a point of, I have a point of view. People, when they read my column or listen to my podcast or watch my TV show, they sort of get my, my persona, my character, however you want to phrase it. But, and so jokes are easier for me because they understand, you know, kind of what's important to me and my, my 
my worldview, um, which at the time when I was, whatever, 20-year-old kid talking to Dennis Miller, I didn't have at all. I didn't understand. Right. So, so that's interesting. So we'll, 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 I want to get to those three questions again when we start to see your transition. But uh, so you went from George Car the George Carlin show to writing for other sitcoms and then movies. Famously, the, the worst movie of the year, uh, Crocodile got Dundee goes to Los Angeles. Yep. Wh whatever year that was, it got the, the Razzie award. No, we were, we were screwed on the, ra I wanted the Razzie. We lost, <laughs> we, we were nominated for a Razzie for worst sequel remake. It was Crocodile Dundee three in Los Angeles. And my writing partner and I got that gig because we'd been on a TV show and it gotten canceled. And our agent called us up and said, you guys want to get into movies, right? And we were like, yeah, but you know, we've never written a script. He's like, I oh, don't worry about that right now. I'm like, oh, okay. And then he's like, um, he goes, you know, you know who Paul Hogan is? Of course. You ever seen Crocodile Dundee? Of course. He goes, well, Paul Hogan's a client. He wants to do a third installment of the franchise. I understand this is 16 years now after the original Crocodile Dundee. Maybe it's 14 years. I think it was 14 years. 14 years or something like that after the original Crocodile Dundee. He goes, Paul Hogan's a client. He wants to do a third installment of the franchise. He's meeting with writers to pitch him ideas of what that movie should be. I'm one of the agents in charge of putting writers in the room with him. Why don't you guys, if you want, I'll put you on the list um, and you can pitch Paul Hogan. He goes, listen, you're not going to get the job, but it'll be good practice. And I go, yeah, great. Let's, let's meet Paul Hogan. Be a good story. Hmm. And so, um, so we went in and we kind of half-assed a pitch and, you know, we just, all we did was we watched the first two movies. It's a longer story than you want, but we, we watched, this is an important story. I think in, in terms of understanding th some things. And so again, going back to context, actually, this is actually really important. Um, now that I think about it, um, we, we watched the, we watched the first two movies and if you've watched the crocodile and the movies and the first one's actually terrific, you know, first, I, I one's get, great. first one's great. And, um, it's a little slow for these times of days, but it's very, he's very charming, uh, in that movie. And so, um, anyway, but the, the whole premise of the movie is this guy that from the wilderness and the outback comes to New York and is sort of reacting to everything, right? And um, he doesn't drive any of the comedy. The, uh, the entirety of the comedy is something something normal happens, and then we see it through his eyes. He reacts. So most comedy stars are the ones that drive the action. They're doing the funny thing. They're making the funny joke. And his humor entirely comes from reacting and just and, and, and sort of staying true to his character. But because that character is so well-defined, and stuff that we take for granted, like crossing the street or, you know, or traffic in New York, right? You know, um, even a bathtub, because you see him early in the movie, like, you know, you know, uh, bathing in a, in a lake um, becomes humorous. And so, so anyway, we go in, we watch the first two movies. And the only rules that we'd been told going into the movie was it has to be present day and it has to include his, his now his real life wife. Linda Kozlowski, who he had met on the first movie, who had played his love interest in the first two movies. So those were the only two rules we had. And so we go in and we go, well, listen, you've done New York. The, the first two movies were about him leaving Australia and going to New York. And so, listen, you've done New York. So tell you what, you and Linda, you're married. It's present day. You've got a little croc. Um, uh, you know, we thought, you know, that was the other thing is we thought, because at the time of the movie, uh, what was popular right then was like, there's something about Mary and all these kind of like really R rated comedies. And we like the only way this, this movie is gentle comedy. And there's only way that the only way this movie has a chance in this d present day 
is if it families go to it, right? It's not, it can't compete with something about Mary. His character just isn't built for that. Right. It sort of seems like you got to aim for something like a, a crocodile Dundee meets vacation with Chevy Chase type of thing. Yeah. And not even probably even lower. Like we were going for like, this is something you can bring your kids to, you know, and like, oh, I remember this movie when I was growing up and, you know, maybe my kids will enjoy it. And so, so we go there and we literally just pitch, you know, we just say like, listen, here's the thing. He goes, so it's present day. You're in Australia. You're married to, you're married to Linda. Sue, I think is the name of the character. You're, you're married to Sue. You guys have a little croc. She gets a job offer in LA. She was a newspaper reporter in the movies. Um, and so you move to LA. Uh, you move to LA because the little one's never seen in the States. Um, you get a job at a movie studio because you can, as an animal trainer, because you know, you can talk to the animals, um, which was one of his things. And, um, uh, and turns out there's some bad guys there. I said, but the majority of the movie is you with your son walking around uh, L.A. and, you know, sort of the blind – you're teaching America to the kid, but you don't understand America either. So it's the blind leading the blind. It's Beverly Hills Croc. And, you know, whatever. You know, you'll react to stuff in L.A., you know, cell phones and things that you had never seen before in Australia. And we'll make it funny. Like literally, like the pitch was a little bit more involved than that, but not much. Huh. And he goes to us. He goes, eh. You guys are the only ones who get me. And we're like, wait, what? Wait, we're we're what? We're we got the job? You can't believe really? And you know, what was important there is the context is we were the only ones. Apparently, everyone else had come in and either pitched him really dirty, raunchy comedies like There's Something About Mary. Um, or they had pitched him like big action movie types, like which is like, you know, Crocodile saves the world from a nuclear explosion. And we were the only ones that went in and said, like, this is a gentle film. It's a gentle character who just reacts to stuff. So we just need to put him in funny situations for him to react to. That's interesting. Basically, by analyzing what made the comedy so special in the original movie, this concept of he's not driving the comedy, it's the context driving the comedy. And then there's the plot putting him in a new and unusual context. Boom, you get the job. And I think that analytical ability is important. Yeah, and it's just understanding why something's funny and and why it's in that. Hmm. Um, not to not to like because comedy's comedy. I don't really love talking about comedy and talking about like oh the you know breaking down comedy into some sort of science. But it's just it's merely about understanding character, I guess, is character and context. And and so that's the, that's the only point there that I would make with that. Like you know the most famous joke from Crocodile Dundee, you know. But like so you see him early in the movie because probably people haven't seen it. It's a very old movie. Very early in the movie, you see him, uh, you know, killing crocodiles and using his knife in the in the Australian outback. And then at one point, they're walking in New York, uh, you know, much later in the movie, they're just walking in New York. Him and Sue are walking in New York and a guy, you know, pulls out a pocket knife and is just like, you know, give me all your money. And he's trying to rob them. And Sue gets all scared. But just Paul just looks at him and goes like, that's not a knife. And he pulls out this huge blade. This is a knife that's a knife, you know, like, you know, that's not a knife, that's a knife. And the guy gets all scared because Paul's got this crazy, huge crocodile Dundee killing knife, crocodile killing knife that we didn't know he was carrying with him throughout New York. And so it gets a huge laugh and it's, it's the most famous line. But again, you know, if you think about it on a piece of paper, that's not a knife. This is a knife. That's not funny. But right. seeing it with the character of him and it's, it's obviously very surprising 
uh, that he's carrying this huge knife. He doesn't understand that it's wrong to be carrying a huge knife like that. Um, it's high stakes because it's, yeah. it's a dangerous situation. Yeah. So all those things. And so, um, uh, so anyway, so all of a sudden then we get the offer to write Crocodile on D Los Angeles and we're going to co-write it with Paul. And so we get a chance to, um, we're going to use his movie quote. Here's another thing that people don't realize. Paul Hogan actually was nominated for an Academy Award for co-writing the first Crocodile Dundee. He had his an Academy Award nomination. I did not know that. So anyway, it was just basically, it was one of those things where it was just like, wait, they want us to write it. And um, I'm sorry, what they're going to pay us how much? I mean, you know, I mean, it was, I always say this, listen, if you're going to whore out, whore out big kids. Um, you know, don't sell out cheap, sell out big. And so we sold out huge. I mean, they, it, you know, it, I, I made a lot of money off of that movie, bought me my first house in LA, you know? Um, so, you know, and, and then it just, it was never going to be a good movie. And then, you know, Paul made it worse. And, um, cause he just rewrote a bunch of our stuff. And, um, anyway, we, so I really wanted a Razzie nominee. I wanted us to win the Razzie for worst worst remake or sequel, but unfortunately we lost out to the Mark Wahlberg Planet of the Apes. Uh, so that we ended up, we were nominated, but we did not win the Razzie that year. Which by the way, was one of the worst movies of all time. <laughs> I have to say Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there and it's an e it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that I'm ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like, if you're hiring for your business, 
You want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see, you'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. It's interesting because I'm going to get back to these three questions. Who are you? Why are you? Why now? It sounds like maybe in the beginning of your Hollywood career, things kind of were clicking on those questions. But at this point, and you even used the phrase selling out, you were sort of losing track of why are you doing this? Why do you need to do this movie now? Like, what's it doing for you? Like, it's not, it wasn't really satisfying your context. No, listen, I was, you know, I was knee deep in, in uh, therapy at the time and really depressed and I didn't understand it. And so, you know, I was married and, you know, my writing partner and I were, um, we're successful writers in that. And, you know, it's, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to break into Hollywood. It's hard to be, uh, yeah, it's like the uh, dream job for a billion people, so many people. And we were working writers, you know, like we had never gotten on a, you know, we did a year on married with children and, uh, we did the last year of married with children. You know, we did whatever crop three, but like the only movie we, you know, we wrote, we probably wrote eight to 10 scripts that we got paid for, right. By studios. And the only movie that ever got made was the worst one we ever wrote by far, which is Croc 3. And, you know, we wrote on a bunch of TV shows. We, we wrote with a bunch of talented people and a bunch of big stars on a bunch of TV shows that just didn't hit. And so we just couldn't, 
you know, get there. And so it was just really, but we were making good money. You know, we, we were making, uh, we made good money. So we were working, you know, sort of B level writers in Hollywood and we could never break through, but, um, it was, uh, you know, a really frustrating time for me. And so I was, and I couldn't figure out why I was depressed. Like we wanted to be on a better show or, or, you know, have a hit movie or something like that. But either way, we just, you know, I was just really depressed. And around this time, so I've been playing fantasy sports since I was 14 years old. In 1999, there was a website called rotoworld.com, which still exists. And rotoworld, um, rotoworld at the time was, uh, was advertising for fantasy writers. Now, 1999, this is the days of dial-up internet and, and um, you know, you've got mail and, um, you know, that kind of thing. And, and so, um, by the way, the George, uh, I, I think, yeah, 90, so, um, uh, yeah, so I, you know, I would, uh, you weren't really online that much, you know, it, that would be a, a novel thing if you actually got a piece of email. And so. I emailed them and I said, listen, I'm a professional writer living out here in Hollywood. Fantasy sports is my passion. I've been playing since I was 14 years old. Could I, you know, could I try out? Could I, you know, send you a sample? Because I just think it'd be fun to do a column on the side. And they wrote me back the next day and they said, we looked you up on IMDb. Married with Children is our favorite show of all time. You're hired. So because the guy running the site at the time, a guy named Matthew Pugliot, was a huge Married with Children fan, I got a chance to write a free column on the Internet at a time in which no one was on the internet, but I was ecstatic. And so I wrote the column and I wrote it for free. And eventually I think I got up to, I think the most I ever got paid was a hundred bucks a week for two columns a week. So I was getting 50 bucks a column. Were, were you, were, were you starting to amass fans? Were you getting a yes. lot of emails? Yeah. Yeah. So I was their most popular writer. Yeah. I mean, you were definitely probably getting more personal satisfaction, like more dopamine hits from this than arguing with Paul Hogan about, Crocodile Dundee scripts. A thousand percent because Hollywood is so much Hollywood is um it's a it can be a very lonely place. Like, you know, you're writing, you're writing off to, you know, yourself. Like, you know, you're a writer, like it's just it's it's you and the keyboard and you know, in the dungeon, yeah. right? And and so writing is a is a lonely exercise and and so and then you're you know, and it's Hollywood's a lot of rejection too, and it's very subjective. And so here I was you know, getting, uh, emails and yeah, people were fans and they were also writing to me for advice, right. Which is a compliment in of itself, you know, yeah. Hey, I value your opinion. Please tell me what to do. I think you're an expert. Please, you know, give me advice. And so, uh, that was exciting. And, um, uh, you know, so I was loving that. And so that was part of it. Right. And so I realized that here I am making, you know, six figures a script and I'm making 50 bucks a column and I care way more about the column than I do the scripts, which was a wake up call to me. And I, I've told this story before, but, uh, my writing partner and I were driving back from, uh, a movie studio and we just had a move, a meeting with two movie stars about a script that we were writing for them. And they had, and I, I don't want to say who it is. I'll tell you off air, but Anyway, this, this movie star basically starts lecturing me and my writing partner about comedy. This is one of the reasons why, again, I don't like to talk, you know, analyze comedy, uh, even though we did a lot of that at the beginning of this podcast. He starts lecturing me about comedy. I'm like, look, dude, and I don't say this to him. I think it. But I'm just thinking, like, look, you don't like the joke. Tell me you don't like the joke, and I'll beat it. I'll come up with 10 other jokes 
you can pick from. And if you don't like those 10, I'll come up with 10 more. Because you're the movie star. You're the one that has to sell this on the big screen. And if you don't think it's funny, if you don't think you can sell it, I got no issue with that. So, but don't sit here and lecture me about comedy, man. I, I, I've been making a living as a comedy writer. Your producers, you approved me to be hired. I must have been funny enough at some point to have gotten to this point, right? So I don't need a lecture on, you know, uh, on comedy. And yet, but he was like, he was, so he was just, he was lecturing me on comedy, uh, him and this, the other movie star for like three hours. And like, oh, about, you know, and basically notes on the movie, but just very lecturing. And we're driving back from the meeting and I'm just, you know, I'm MMing this guy and I'm like, oh, that was blah, 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 blah. And I just have this epiphany, James. I have this epiphany, epiphany where I'm just like, wow, I, I'm complaining about a movie star giving me notes for the movie we're writing because he wants to make it. And look, could he have delivered the notes in a better way? Sure, of course. And um, he could have been more constructive in how he delivered it. But ultimately, a movie star is giving me notes on a script I've written because he wants to make it. Like that's a high class problem in Hollywood. Right. And if that doesn't make me happy, then there's no help in me, right? You know what I mean? It's just like that's a that's a that's that was just a real, you know, kind of epiphany where I'm just like, I got to get out, I got to get out. And and you know, my wife and I, um, we had met when I was 25 and she was 23, and at this point I'm 35 and she's 33, and uh, along the way there. I had started, I had left Roto World to start my own website called Talented Mr. Roto, which was my website. And so, uh, you know, but I'm, I'm doing stuff, I'm doing uh, jobs on the side. And so it's a, you know, I'm, I'm telling sort of concurrent stories here. But in essence, basically, I was waking up in the morning and going to bed at night thinking entirely about my website that had maybe 2,000 kids on it at the most at that time um, than I was about these movies that I was being paid a lot of money to write and that I had movie stars giving me notes for. And that was just sort of a wake up call. And along the way, my wife and I had just sort of grown apart. And I don't, you know, if your listeners can think about for your listeners that are, you know, 35 and older, think about the kind of person you were at 35 versus the kind of person you were at 25. And so mm -hmm. my, my wife and I just grew apart. I mean, like we were just, uh, you know, she was, you know, nothing bad. There was no third person. We never fought. We just, we just grew apart. We were just so different that each of us at 35 than we were at, or 35 and 33, than we were at 25 and 23 that we just sort of grew apart. So we, we, uh, we divorced amicably, but we split up. And around that time, um, I, I was, you know, I realized that I had to, I just wanted to chase happiness. I just wanted to chase happiness and I was so depressed, you know, and it was like, I'm, I was in therapy. Like, why am I depressed? Like I have this career that so many people envy. I'm working with big stars and being paid a lot of money and I'm in, I'm in a happy marriage or so I thought. And like, why am I just massively depressed all the time? And it took me a couple of years of therapy to get there, but I realized I wasn't in a happy marriage. I was just sort of fooling myself. And by the way, so was my ex-wife. We were both sort of fooling ourselves and I actually hated my career the thing my passion was, was, was fantasy football of all things, which in 2005, who thought you could make a career of? But so I went to my running partner and I said, listen, at the beginning of 2005, I went to my running partner and I said, listen, um, Rachel and I are splitting up. 
And um, I, uh, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I want to try to make a career of my website. I want to try to make a career of, of fantasy sports. So let's write one more movie together. Bank the money, I'm telling you, because I'm out after this. And I'll probably make $10,000 a year if I'm lucky. I mean, who can make a living at fake football? But I'm going to – I want – it's the only thing that makes me happy. So I'm just going to chase happiness, and I'll, I'll figure out how to pay the bills later. You know, and I, I had a nice little nest egg because of the success of writing movies. And so I did, did you, that. Did you start to think, like, how many years – you could survive trying to do this or did you do any of that calculation or did you no. just say, I'm going to take the plunge? I'm just going to take the plunge. No, but you figured though, one more movie, one more movie. And I mean, listen, understand that at the time, Rachel and I, this is my ex-wife now, Rachel and I, Rachel worked, I worked. Um, we had no kids. Um, so we both made nice living. She was an executive. She still is an executive to this day. Um, a uh, high-powered executive at a, a uh, at a TV network and uh, does really well for herself. She's very smart, and uh, so we we made a good living uh, as a couple. So you know, I was I was lucky, very blessed in that I had the financial freedom to be able to go for this. That I had enough in the bank, no, but I didn't make the thing like I, this is only going to work for three years. I was just like, I'll figure it out. Hmm. And so, um, uh, you know, and and so I just I went for it. Right. So let me ask at this point, you're, you're, if I were to ask you the questions at that point, who are you? Why are you? Why now? At that point, who am I is I am an extremely depressed 35 year old man whose one joy in life is a dumb fantasy sports website that he is running, which is, you know, basically a, a glorified blog. And we had a message board and we had some other columnists. Um, but you know, it was kind of like a very souped up blog, um, called talentsofmrwrote.com. But I loved, I loved the challenge of building the site, of finding the writers of, you know, being on the message board and talking with people and dealing with customer service and trying to promote the site and go out to, you know, other websites and other radio stations and TV stations saying, I'll come on your air for free. I'll write for free. Just link back to my site and trying to build that business. And, and so I, I was energized by that. And so, but everything else I, you know, you know, I, I was feeling, you know, unloved and, um, you know, my marriage was breaking up and, uh, you know, and I was giving up this, this career in show business that I'd spent the last 12 years working for. And, th and then there's the question, uh, why are you, which is sort of, I guess, what unique perspective did you think you had to offer fantasy sports? I thought it could be funny and entertaining. You know, that at the time that I started, uh, a lot of, you know, fantasy sports is very dry. It's a lot of statistics. It's a lot of numbers. You know, I know, James, you deal with this as well when you're, when you're writing financial stuff. Like, it's tough, right? When you're dealing with numbers, how to make numbers interesting. Right. Um, and so, uh, you know, that was my, so that was the thing that I thought I could have, that my, my showbiz background, my writing ability, my, my comedic background that I could make it interesting and fun, that I could take a dry subject and make it mainstream, make it palatable, you know, make it, um, you know, sort of bite size and, uh, you know, more accessible is maybe a, a good way to put it more accessible to more people, not just sort of those who are very statistically inclined. And so, because much of the, much of the analysis that was out there was all very dry. And I always felt this way. And I still do to this day that if you, if you printed out, 
six different fantasy football columns or 10, pick up however many you want, print out 10 different fantasy football columns and you rip off the URL and you rip off the, the who wrote it and it's all in the same font, that the, the other nine articles, you couldn't tell me who wrote those articles. You couldn't tell me if it was a Yahoo or a CBS or another ESPN or blah, blah. You couldn't tell me any of that. But if you could read my column, and even if you hate me, you'd be like, oh, that's a Matthew Berry column. That my style was very unique. That's the best compliment you could have in an industry. Like I, I felt that too when I was doing finance writing is that I had a particular perspective. And so people could, it always stood out. Whether people liked it or hated it, and some people hated it, it always sort of stood out. Yeah. Hundred percent. I'm. Uh, my computer's about ready to die, so I'm. I'm walking. Sorry, producer Jay, engineer Jay. Uh, I'm uh, walking to plug this in so we don't lose uh, our connection. But that's why the sound may be a little off as I'm wandering around, trying to speak loudly. Um, but yes. So that's why. What's the third question? Uh, why now? So more from the perspective of what was happening in. Well, the why now is because I was miserable. and What was happening in society? I don't know about, uh, well, fantasy football was starting to become more popular. The internet was becoming more prominent. Um, but in terms of for why now, for me, it was just like I had to. Otherwise, you know, I was getting into a dark place. Like, you know, I had, I had suicidal thoughts. They were always fleeting. But I, you know, I was in a really dark, depressed place. And so I did it because literally I had to chase happiness. It was the only, you know, I mean, otherwise I just... So that was, that's why now for me, it was just like, again, I, I don't know that I, you know, I always thought, I've done a bunch of interviews where people have said like, oh, did you ever think fantasy football would become as popular as it, as it has? And I said, no, did, like I said, did I think it would become more popular and more mainstream? Yes, because for me, look, I'm not, a, I'm not an obscure, weird guy at least in terms of the things that I like, right? The things that I like, like I like Springsteen, right? I mean, like, you know, I like pizza. I like rock and roll. I like going to Vegas. I like action movies, superhero movies. Like, you know, the stuff that I like is like super mainstream. And I also like fantasy football. So I'm like, if I like all these other things that, you know, tons of other people like, my tastes are fairly mainstream. So my guess is that as more people get exposed to fantasy football, they'll enjoy it. Um, and so, yes, we just need to get more people exposed to this game because I think they'll actually really love it and enjoy it. That, that's an interesting insight, by the way, in the sense that a lot of people say, well, what's the latest trend? That's what I should get into. And so like, oh, bread machines are trending on Shopify <laughs> because I guess everyone's home and they're baking bread for comfort. So I should start getting into bread recipes or whatever. Whereas you're coming at it from bottoms up, which is, hey, this is what I'm interested in. So what else am I going to do? Like, this is what I should do. Well, it's a whole thing of like, you know, it's the old phrase of like, you know, follow your passion and you'll never work a day in your life. Right. I mean, like, I'm a big believer in that if if you if it's something you enjoy, there are other people that enjoy it. Now, there you know, there's limits. Right. I mean, there's things, some things that more people will enjoy than others. But I have yet to meet anyone that has one thing that they enjoy that no one else does. Right. You know, so I mean, like just follow your passion, get good at something. You know, I, I, we're talking a lot about comedy in this one and I didn't, again, not to analyze comedy, but one of the, the amazing things about Seinfeld is back in the days when I was writing sitcoms, it was always like, a, it, was, it was a lot of like, what's the lesson and what are the stakes? And that's a note that Hollywood executives always give. What are the stakes? And what Seinfeld taught you better than anyone is, is that it doesn't matter what the stakes are. 
what's the the stakes are important like this is you know this is the big high school dance or whatever it doesn't matter what the stakes are what's important is is it important to the characters you know and i always think about the big salad episode of seinfeld where um george want george picks up the uh it's been a while since i've seen the episode but i believe george george buys the george buys the big salad and then they're knocking on the door and he gives it to elaine to hold and then the person opens the door and elaine hands the big salad and gets credit for the big salad and george is upset because he's the one who went and bought the big salad and so it's the dumbest smallest pettiest thing in the world you know but it's funny because it's important to george it doesn't matter that yeah. the stakes are just who gets credit for the big salad. The funny part and the important part is it's important to George. That's the stakes. And so, you know, I mean, uh, you know, I, I would just say to anyone listening that it's, I would worry, I wouldn't yet yeah, try to jump on a trend of like, I need to get into this or I need to get into that. Like get into what you love, follow your passion. I mean, it's something you did as well, James. And it's like, you know, and it'll, you know, I, I don't know that it'll work out, uh, you know, as well as, you know, I, I, I don't know. I just think you'll be a lot happier and everything will happen. Like I, I thought I was, my quote for a movie when I gave up Hollywood was a quarter of a million dollars for us to write a movie, you know, a, you know, a draft of a movie and a rewrite, it was a quarter of a million dollars. And I gave that up thinking like, I'm probably going to, you know, like, you know, people aren't really making money on the internet at this point. And, but whatever, I just want to chase happiness. I don't care. I'll I'll take the hidden money. I don't care. Money's not everything. I just want to be happy. And I've made so much more money than I ever did in Hollywood at fantasy football. And that was never the plan. It was just by design trying to, you know, just try to follow happiness and chase happiness and chase my passion. So during this period, I mean it's also an interesting thing what you start to learn to say yes to as opposed to no to and what 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 you were saying yes to previously now you're saying no to so would hollywood start calling you or would your writing partner start calling you and saying hey matt i know you're doing this fantasy football thing but there's this great new sitcom starting they want us to make a pitch just one more for the team yeah i got a couple of those calls um and I've I've continued to get them. Literally, like two years ago, a, a movie producer, a big time movie producer who I've been friends with for a long time, called me and wanted me to rewrite this football book. You know, he's just like she was just like ah, you know, like I got, I need somebody. It's a football story. I know you're a good writer and you understand football. And would you rewrite this movie for me? And I'm just like, nah, or turn a book into a movie. Basically, she had a book and wanted me to write it and put it into a movie. And I just like no. Um, I was flattered by it, but I, I said no. So yeah, it happens every once in a while, but it's just, again, it's just, you know, when I talk to college students or, you know, people ask advice, my advice is always get good at one thing, figure out one thing to get good at. And if you can get good at one thing, everything else will expand from there. Yeah, it's really true. That's like the wheel. And then there's spokes. Like you had, you had one spoke was doing all these blogs. Another spoke might've been writing for other publications. Another spoke is going on the radio. Another spoke is starting to analyze on TV. Yeah, I mean, from my point of view, right, I decided to get good at writing sitcoms when I graduated college. I decided to get good at writing sitcoms. And because I got good at writing sitcoms and I was on Married with Children, that got me a chance to write. That got me an opportunity to write, um, uh, you know, blog posts, you know, whatever, fantasy football articles. And because I got good at that, 
I, you know, somebody put me on the radio. They liked my columns and they put me on the radio. And because I was good at the radio, ESPN hired me and decided to give me some a shots on some TV. And because I was good on TV and good on the radio and good at writing columns, then ESPN bought my website and, and, and let me do this job full time. And because I've been good on MTV, because I've been, you know, been good on, on ESPN with the columns, the TVs and the podcasts, you know, I have a cameo in Avengers Endgame. You know what I mean? Like it, it's the dumbest right, thing in the you're world. You're a shield agent. I was a shield agent. I'm, I'm listen, I've been in one movie in my life, Avengers Endgame. I had four lines. Um, it's the highest grossing movie of all time worldwide. So on a per movie basis, I'm the highest grossing actor of all time. I mean, let's well, just on, write, average, yes. on average, I mean, again, on a per movie basis, like you know, I've done one movie, it's the highest grossing of all time. I'm sorry. It is what it is. I'm, I'm not making, you know, it's not bragging if it's true. Right, James. I mean, that's exactly saying. right. Uh, but right. I mean, but like, and that was a once in a lifetime and amazing experience. But my point is, is like that all became a, all of these things that have happened to me. Um, have, and all the experiences I've had, you know, thanks to ESPN, everything, all of it became possible because I started out my career by getting good at one thing. And once I got good at, I focused on that. And once I got good at that thing, other opportunities made themselves available to me. And how did you know, like you said before, you were interested in Bruce Springsteen, you were interested in, you know, pizza, you're interested in other things. How did you know fantasy sports would be the thing as opposed to writing blog posts about Bruce Springsteen or music or whatever. It's just, that was my passion. Like I just, I loved fantasy football more than I loved Springsteen or more than I loved pizza, you know? And, um, and I also thought that there was an opportunity there. I mean, I just personally, I mean, how many times have you heard, uh, you know, that like, well, why'd you invent this? You know, why'd you invent it? Right. Well, because I was, Why'd you invent post-it notes? Because I was always trying to like tape notes and I thought, you know what I mean? Like so many- like there was something right? annoying you. Yeah, it's just, you know, like necessity is the mother of invention, right? And so, so many times, you know, products and, and inventions happen because the, the person who invented it was like, I'm not satisfied with the current solution, so let me come up with a better solution. And I don't want to say that I wasn't satisfied, but I just, again, I, I was an avid consumer and still am of other fantasy content and I wasn't, totally satisfied with everything. There were some great writers and people I respect and that I'm friends with to this day, but you know, I just felt like there was, there should, it was a little bit too esoteric. It was a little bit too stat heavy. It was a little bit too nerdy. And that I thought there would be an opportunity there to, uh, you know, to sort of bring my unique style, pop culture, humor, uh, you know, accessibility, making it, you know, more mainstream taking, you know, large pieces of information and, and putting them into, you know, sort of bite-sized nuggets that. It... Right. And I think it's important to, to understand too, that for a while it was a transition for a while you were doing both and then you made the transition and it takes years for these things to happen. But, you know, what would you say to say, let's say someone's listening to this and they're, a paralegal at, at Procter and Gamble and they're thinking, you know what? I was just furloughed or I might be furloughed or I might be fired and things are accelerated. Now I've got to kind of figure out what to do next. Like not that there's a, a solid process, but what, what are maybe some questions they can ask themselves or, or ways to think about it to pers in order to determine what they love and what the next steps might be? Well, they should know what they love. And then you think about, well, how can I make a living at this? And then the question becomes like, okay, how can I do, how can I make inroads 
um, given my current situation. Again, I was very lucky in that, you know, I had saved up a nest egg. I didn't have kids. Yes, I, I changed careers at 35 and started over at 35, but I also, my wife and I, had, my first wife and I, you know, now ex-wife, we'd split up. And uh, so I was unencumbered, right? I wasn't worried about supporting a spouse. I wasn't worried about supporting children. Um, I had no immediate monetary needs. Like, you know, I wasn't getting rich, but I also wasn't um, worried about where my next meal was coming from. A thing like that. I had to be, you know, conservative and smart. So, you know, there are people out there that are furloughed that have that have significant others that have kids that um, that have money issues. And so, you know, all those challenges are very, very real. And, uh, you know, so I don't know that there's blank advice for any one particular person. But what I would say is, it's like start small. I mean, I, you know, is there your dream is to open up your own bake shop. Okay. Well, you don't need to, you don't need to do that. Are there pieces you can do, right? Like I didn't build a fantasy empire overnight. I started with a column once a week for free and built my way from there. Right. Could you make one pie a week? Hmm. You know what I mean? Could you, could you make two pies a week? Is there a local, you know, you know, will somebody will somebody pay you for a pie? Will you just give away your pie? People start talking about your pie. I, you know what I mean? Like, are there baby steps? What's the first baby step you can take? Right. Is there an hour during the week that you can carve out to do your passion? After the kids are in bed or wake up an hour early or something like that or give up working out one day or, you know, and I don't know the answer. You know what I mean? Again, everyone's in a different situation and we're in a weird world at the moment, right? And it, it's awful and it's, it, you know, words don't describe, you know, um, what everyone's going through. The words are inadequate. Well, do you get worried that um, sports and NFL, when it comes back, is the fan experience going to be different because the, the stadiums might not be full. They might be empty. It might be just for TV. Do you get nervous now that, hey, sports as we know it could could be ending or changing? Sure, of course. I mean, listen, I, you know, I, I mean, uh, I mean, who knows? I mean, you know, ESPN, it, it, like, you know, the, like like a lot of companies uh, in America, Disney has been hit hard. There's been a lot of stories about that. ESPN is a division of Disney. And so if there's no football season, you know, I hope that I'm still employed, but I don't know. I don't know what Disney, you know, I mean, like, you know, could Disney decide to furlough me if there's no football season, if football gets canceled? Sure. Uh, you know, hundred percent. So you always worry about that. It, it, it's specific to your, you know, but I, there's nothing I can do about it. Right. I, all I can do is try to do the best job I can and, and handle it. However it happens. Right. Um, you know, and try to show value to my employer and continue to, you know, be a company man. And, you know, um, and would you ever do fantasy sports of other sports? Oh, other sure. Than I mean, I started, I started my career. The very first fantasy column I ever wrote was a fantasy basketball column. And I, I did fantasy baseball and fantasy basketball for a number of years along with fantasy football, but football has become so much bigger and become kind of a year round sport. We've already done, you know, even though it's the off season, I've done a, a bunch of different podcasts, my own, the fantasy focus podcast. We've done a, a couple episodes of the fantasy show on ESPN plus around free agency and the NFL draft. And so, you know, my rankings are up on ESPN.com for 2020 right now. And I've written a couple of columns as well. So um, we're producing content. It's it's a football's become a year round sport. But um, but sure. I mean, you know, football got canceled, but there was a basketball season. You know, those are all decisions that, you know, I would make along with ESPN. And 
we'll see what happens. But uh, ultimately, I guess in terms of do I think the fan experience will change? hundred percent. Of course I do. Uh, as as it relates to fantasy football, I actually think that fantasy football will become more popular if there is a season this year because going to the game will be more difficult or people may not want to go to the game because it's not easy. You know, money is tighter these days. And so maybe there's not as many people that have as much discretionary income. And, and so uh, I think there'll be more people sitting at home watching football than going to the stadiums for a variety of reasons to watch the games, assuming there's a season. So I think, you know, there'll be more people that are interested in fantasy football because if you're watching football, there's nothing better than playing fantasy football and having a rooting interest in every single game. You know, what, one thing about your story that that strikes me when I'm thinking about it as applies to myself, there's one decision that would have been really hard for me, I think, and this is just my own insecurities and, and so on. But like when you made the decision to, you know, go from writing the, the screenplays to being uh, single and writing these blog posts for $100 a post or working on your own site and, and so on, I think I would have been nervous about what other people thought of me, which is a bad thing to be nervous about, but I'm just being honest. Like I would have been worried, oh, here's this guy. He's 35 years old. He's divorced. And he used to be cool writing screenplays. Like, let's say you were still living in LA and that's the whole culture of LA. And now he's, what is he doing? I don't quite get it. I would have been nervous. I would never have met like uh, 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 another woman, for instance. <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, so it's a couple of things. I, I was, I was definitely nervous about that. And it, it it's probably one of the reasons probably delayed me for a year or two before, because I was like, everyone's going to be like, are you, wait a minute, you're quitting show business for, for, for some dumb internet site that makes no money to do, what's it called? F fake football? Like what? Fantasy football? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes, 100%. But it got to, I mean, that's the thing is I got to a point where it was just like, I either do this, I, I need to save my life. Like I, I either do this or I, who knows what happens, right? So it got to a breaking point where it just, it no longer mattered what anyone thought. Um, but what was weird, James, is that I found is, again, sometimes the things that are our biggest fears turned out to be our biggest strengths. So, um, you know, I, <laughs> uh, you know, I, uh, like, for example, um, I would then, as I was, as I was in the kind of transition page, right, like I said, you know, my writing partner decided to do one last, um, one last screenplay. And so while we were doing that, but I was transitioning and I was making this full-time career and I was letting people know that I was quitting or even afterwards, cause I lived in LA for another, another year. Um, uh, you know, I basically quit in 2005 to try and make a go of it. I lived in LA 2000. I didn't move to Connecticut and join ESPN until uh, 2007. So, you know, 2006, I would still go out to parties and, you know, meet friends. And I had a lot of, all my friends were in show business. And so I'd go to you know, parties or bars, or whatever, and people would ask what had happened, and I'd tell them the story, and they were all, and I was so nervous, right? Yeah, that's right. I quit show business to pursue fantasy football, you know, and this is pre ESPN. And the reaction was, oh my God, you got out. Huh. And I'm, I'm so, that's so brave. Good for you. You know what I mean? So people were so supportive, um, you know, and good for you, man. That's, so that was, that was amazing. And, you know, and then I, I put that, I put that honesty about myself in my columns. I'm a, you know, I've made no bones about this. I'm a huge Howard Stern fan and there's a lot to admire about Howard. And one of the things that I think has made him 
the incredible success he is, is that he is so honest and open about his life, the good and the bad. And, and so I've tried to emulate that. And I've, you know, again, made no bones about the fact that I've completely tried to steal a lot of shtick from Howard because that's also like find people that are smart, that do what you do or not even do what you do, but find people that you admire that you think do a good job and try to learn and steal from them. And so, yeah, his yeah. book, Howard Stern comes again, is like the masterclass on how to do an interview. Yes, it is. Like, I do think he is the best interviewer by far on the planet. A thousand percent. Well, uh, Matt Berry, I know you're busy even during this lockdown, figuring out all the fantasy picks and everything. Uh, thank you so much for coming on again after a, a six year absence from the podcast. <laughs> And uh, I, I super appreciate it. I really admire your story. It's always stuck with me. It's always made me think about, you know, different stages of my own story. And um, I, I think it's I think it's very inspirational. And of course, it's it's taking you to massive success. By the I way, after that. we had scheduled this podcast, yeah. uh, I've been rewatching uh, the TV series, The League. And of yeah. course, in the second season, you're you're on an episode, a famous episode of The League. It was a, it's a great episode. You do very well. And uh it was funny. I, but, uh, I appreciate that. By the way, this is very weird. But that episode, so it's 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 actually season three, episode three. It's called the Au Pair, and uh, oh, yeah. and and so if you you know you want to watch it on Netflix or wherever you watch the league, and uh, it's a great show. People come up to me, you know, whatever. Seven years after I did that, I still get, hey, Matthew Berry, pretty score on the bar. Or, you know, I still get people quoting the, <laughs> that show to me. But what's amazing is is that the woman that plays the Au Pair in that episode is Brie Larson. So yeah. I've done very little acting in my life, but the two things that I've done, I've done the league and I've done Avengers Endgame, and Brie Larson is in both of them. Um, and that I've so literally funny. never did, did she come to that? No, I've never met Brie Larson. I mean, you know, my <laughs> scenes in both both projects were uh, you know separate from Brie. She's obviously a massive star, but I just find that interesting that <laughs> apparently, uh, you know, apparently when Brie Larson does something, I show up as well. Um, so, uh, anyway, I just, That's so funny. I, yeah. you just send her a gift basket. I really, I really should. She's terrific. Uh, she's very talented. Um, but what I was going to say is, uh, James, I'll just say one last thing. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's, you know, I'm a fan of yours for a long time. Uh, I was a fan before we became friends. I'm, uh, it's been, uh, it's been great getting to know you. Um, my, uh, I just found out this morning, I was talking to my, uh, my 19 year old son, who's a sophomore at Tulane, I mentioned, he was like, what are you doing today? And I told him I'm, I'm doing, I mentioned that uh, I'm doing your podcast. He's like, ah, oh, I bought that guy's Bitcoin book. I love that guy. So <laughs> that's funny. there you go. Uh, I didn't even know I had a, uh, he was a fan of yours. I had a fan of yours in my, um, uh, in my, in my house. But um, uh, what I was going to say is, that's good to know. Yes. Uh, one thing I was going to say, just your fans in terms of like sort of pursuing your dreams, like, so I do a show on ESPN plus called the fantasy show and it's a weird show. Like we have puppets and a talking robot and we have a, you know, and my sidekick isn't like a typical pretty girl. My sidekick is a guy with a big bushy beard, tattoos all over his body, a nose ring, uh, and you know, in big, uh, you know, loop earrings. Um, it does not look like anyone you normally see on ESPN. I'll leave it at that. And, um, uh, but it was the show that I thought was the funniest. And, you know, I, I got to a place where ESPN was like, what do you want to do? You know, we're going to give you a show, do what you want to do. And I'm like, this is what I think is funny. This is what I think is different. I know it's weird. I know you're like, wait, a puppet show and like pup, you want puppets and talking robots and you know, this 
bearded weird guy. And I'm like, I do. I, and you know, it's, it's, it's the highest rated studio show on ESPN plus now, you know, and we're going into our fourth season. So that's great. So, and, but I, I don't say that to brag about me, um, but merely to say like, again, there will always be people that say no, that doubt you that, that say, don't do that, that, oh, you can't do that. Why are you going to do that? That even after I had had a lot of success at ESPN, there were still people that didn't want me to do, they wanted me to do a typical me behind a desk with two other people talking over highlights. And I was just like, no, I want to do something that I think will stand out. I want to do something that I think is funny, that amuses me. And, you know, it, it's worked out. Right. And I'm, I'm much happier doing that than I am, than I would be if I'd just done another, there's nothing wrong with them. I do them all the time. The, you know, behind a desk with two other people kind of shows. But, uh, for this one, for me, I just, I wanted, I wanted puppets. I thought, I think puppets are funny. Yeah. And look, I think again, it's a context thing. Like you felt that the typical anchor setup wouldn't, or newsroom setup wouldn't work well. And like, you look at, you look at the sitcom, the league, for instance, which is a, ostensibly a sitcom about fantasy football. I know nothing about fantasy sports and yet I've gotten away with two interviews with you Ah. and I've watched this entire series twice and I still don't know anything about fantasy sports. And yet that's a funny sitcom and these are great interviews. And I loved your book, the fantasy life. So it's not a pre, you know, you know, fantasy sports is something to do, but then there's the whole subculture around it, which, you know, you've now added to and maybe that subculture doesn't like the typical newsroom. Yeah. Listen, ultimately at the end of the day, fantasy is fun, right? It's a game. It's a hobby we play uh, to pass the time. And so I've always tried to embrace that. Uh, So many, so many other people like crush your league, dominate your opponent. Like, yes, it is more fun when you win. There is no question. It is more fun when you win, but it's ultimately, this is an escape. It's a hobby. It's something to do with your buddies, with your, your friends from college or your coworkers or your family, you know, like, you know, it's fun, man. And so I always think content should reflect that. And so I always try very hard to do it and do it in a different way. And, and I thought, you know, with all the ESPN has seven different channels and how can I stand out and how can I do something different? And, um, and I thought you could, you know, ESPN, we're a conservative company, you know, we're owned by the Disney corporation. I thought, well, you know what, you can get away with a little bit more if you have puppets, like, you know, a puppet can tell a dirty joke that, uh, that I can't. So, um, that's funny. So it's a, it's a bit of a subversive show as well. Well, uh, Matt Berry, uh, I don't even know what you want me to plug the, I, the fantasy show on ESPN plus fantasy show on ESPN plus fantasy focus podcast. You can subscribe there. If you do that, um, you know, if you like fantasy sports, download the fantasy life app, which is hundred percent free. And our alerts are literally the best in the business. So it's hundred percent free. The Fantasy Life app, just it's we're at 4.8 stars on iOS and five stars on Google, uh, Android. So, um, again, 100% free. Just search for Matthew Berry's Fantasy Life, uh, in uh, wherever you get your apps. It's a great app. Well, uh, and thanks once again, Matt, for coming on the show. My pleasure. Let's not make it six years between my next appearance. Definitely not. All right, brother. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.